If you're looking for a partner to help you with marketing, I highly recommend you reach out to Andrew Lowen at Next Level Web. In the last year, Andrew and his company have helped board game creators raise more than $2 million on Kickstarter, and 91% of those campaigns funded in the first 24 hours, and 74% of those campaigns were from first-time creators. They have a system that works and offer solutions ranging from helping you build ads for your project all the way to fully managing your marketing campaign. So if you're looking for a reliable marketing partner for your upcoming campaign, visit nextlevelweb.com kickstarter and fill out a contact form. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about toys. We're talking about the toy market. We're talking about what does it look like as a game designer to possibly break in to the other side of the market, the mass market, the toy market. And we're talking to Ajel Wade, the toy coach and the founder of Toy Creators Academy, Ajel. Welcome to the show. Hey, Gabe. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, really excited to have you here. Uh, we were talking right before uh, we hit record about how I don't do episodes that I'm not excited about. That is one of the the prerequisites. If I'm going to do a show, it has to be either a person I'm really excited to talk to or a topic that I'm really excited to understand or learn more about or, or talk with a guest about. And so when you reached out to me about coming on the show, it's like, well, you know, my my main demographic is board game designers, specifically in the hobby market. But more and more, there's opportunities for crossover. More and more, there's some really cool angles to, to move over from the hobby side into the mass market, into the toy market. And I don't know much about that. I, I've spent my entire time <laughs> in the other side. And so I'm really excited to talk to you, really excited to pick your brain about what does this look like and how do you do it and what are all the differences? Because there's some very distinctive uh, differences about the toy market from the board game or the hobby game uh, market. But before we get into all of that, who are you? How, how did you get into designing toys and in the toy industry and all that kind of thing? Yeah. So I studied uh, display and exhibit design at the Fashion Institute of Technology because I met a woman who I just thought I wanted to grow up and be like, and that's what she studied. So I just copied her. <laughs> but I always thought I was going to be a teacher, actually. And I always thought I'd work with kids. So when I got into that program, I uh, focused all of my designs on children's exhibitions. And I did it so much that one of my teachers looked at me and he was like, you know, Agel, there is a toy design program here. And I was like, what? That's the thing? And he said, yeah. And I was like, okay, but can you actually make money doing that? Like, I'm trying to live a life here, <laughs> you know? And he told me, he's like, no, yeah, you can totally make money doing that. It's a thing. And he showed me um, the, what the, he, he showed me the way to get in touch with the head of the program. And I reached out to her and I said, hey, I think I'm interested in this program. And the rest is history. I went to that program, got my first job. And 10 years later, I was a VP at a toy company, manning, managing a team of four and a bunch of products, like hundreds of products and uh, leading the growth, leading like multi-million dollar growth. And it was pretty cool, I must say. Yeah, that's awesome. And I, I saw in your bio that you've worked for places like Toys R Us and, and some really big, well-known companies, well-known names. And, and now you're doing a lot to help other people as far as understand the toy business, toy industry and how to get there 
games out there. And like I said, over 10 years of experience. So yeah, I'm really excited just to understand what, what does this mean? How do I do this? If I have an idea that turns out like would be really good for this market, you know, it's a game or at least some type of a game. And we'll talk about kind of what that means in a minute. You know, maybe I can break over out of the hobby side and into this mass market toy market side of things. And so let's get a good like working definition. When you talk about toy market, what does that mean exactly? Like what is the difference, especially from my listener's standpoint of, okay, the hobby games. And now we're talking about the toy side of things. Like what does that mean exactly? I mean, in my mind, I'm thinking the toy market is more of the mass market. And I just think about it in terms of where you're selling and the quantities that you're selling. So I'm thinking more Amazon. I'm thinking more Target. I'm thinking Walmart. I'm thinking uh, Kmart. Um, and I'm thinking quantities of a minimum of 30,000 pieces in order, uh, 3,000, sorry, 3,000 pieces in order. Um, that's the minimum I'm thinking. And and I think that that market is so different because, you know, there's a little bit of a barrier to entry because it's all so reliant on relationships and there are relationships that you're really going to have a hard time building if you didn't work in the industry. But honestly, the reason I started everything that I did is because I was seeing a lot of really good ideas that weren't from in the toy industry. And I realized there was no real way to tell people what they needed to do to break in. And the way people would pitch me and show me things, I was like, no, I could never bring this to my boss. You know, I just, I could never, he would laugh at me and turn me away. So I wanted to create a kind of a compendium of information to help people um, present their ideas and give the information that a toy company might need to want to be able to license it. Very cool. And I know you've got a podcast, you've, you've done over 50 episodes at this point and you sound a lot like me honestly where you're like okay how do i get this information out to people because it's such a challenge especially for people who are just getting started who maybe been designing games or designing toys for 15 minutes and now they're like oh how do i how do i do this what are the next steps how do i pitch a game and all that so yeah this is gonna be really interesting for people that i know who listen to the show who just don't, don't understand this side of the industry at the same time like there's a lot of opportunity right now as target and walmart and amazon all these other big companies are really just opening the floodgates for games. I think the pandemic really showed these companies that there is money to be made with games and the pandemic honestly created a lot more gamers. I've had a lot of people start listening to this show and become game designers because of the pandemic. And so, yeah, let's just get into it. What are some really good examples of these games that are in the toy market? What are maybe some of your favorites or some that kind of get you going as really specific? Okay, here's here's what we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, oh, like there's a fun game called Flesh and Frenzy where you just like catch poop that is hilarious. Uh, it's a super fun game. But I was also telling you before we started that I recently played the Uno Jackpot game, which was just a machine um, that kind of shoots out Uno cards at you, which is a, a lot of fun and gives a new twist to the game. But also, uh, when you think about toy games, I think about things like. Uh, doggy do that was like an old toy that like they still remake and and, uh, repackage because it did so well and those are all inventor items you know those are inventors are coming up with these with these concepts well actually i don't know if the uno one is an inventor item for sure but the other two they're definitely inventor items and i feel like the toy industry because they're so focused on um like a quantity of products they don't spend a lot of time uh, focusing on innovation because innovation takes time. So they really rely on 
on inventors to come in with this new innovation and, you know, come prepared so it's ready for them to manufacture. Absolutely. I also feel like there's a quota every year on poop games because there are so many games about bodily functions or toilets, like you mentioned. It's just kind of crazy. Is there a quota? Have you like have you seen the numbers on why there has to be at least 17 poop games every year? No, I haven't seen it. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know what's going on with the poop games. The kids love poop. Uh, the company Fair enough. my boyfriend works for, they just had a game out. Uh, well, it's a toy game. It's a, It's the same kind of thing. And it's called like Silly Poopy. And he... He's like, he's a poop that you play hide and seek with. So it's like, and it was like an Amazon choice item. Like what is happening out there? Like this world. Oh man. It's so funny. I talked to game designers who, you know, they'll put three, four, five years into something and then uh, into a project and then they'll go to Kickstarter and it'll make, you know, $30,000 and, and they'll, they'll print up 2000 copies. And they're like, wow, look at all this success and all this, but, and all that time and effort and energy that went into that. And then you have a game like, don't step in the poop. I think is one of them. That'll oh, yeah, sell a million copies. Yeah, yeah, don't step in it. There it is. And and the guy came up with it in like ten minutes, and then it sold two million copies. And it's like maybe we're on the wrong side, you know? You know, I mean, yeah, but it depends on what you love. Like, cause the don't step in it. I mean, I can't speak from. I didn't. I wasn't a part of his life. I don't know exactly what happened in that deal. But usually, when an inventor pitches an idea, the process isn't as fun and involved and educational as the process of essentially building your own little game business by marketing it yourself, selling it yourself, shipping it yourself and doing all of that. Like you're not learning nearly as much as you learn by being essentially an entrepreneur of your, of games. So the process is usually, you know, if you pitch it yourself, for example, you'll develop like a sell sheet and a sizzle video of the concept and you'll pitch it to probably a dozen companies and probably 11 of them will say no. And one of them will say maybe, and then they'll tell you to send the sample and you just pray and hope that they, that they actually want to move forward with it. And even if they say yes, that you're fighting over percentages of, you know, what you should get if they sell this product and how long those terms will be for that product and, and all that. So, I mean, the experience is so different and I think it's a, I don't know, it's much more of like a, a business and a legal um, exercise when you're an inventor for the mass market kind of toy world versus being, you know, an invent a toy board game inventor and manufacturer on your own. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think it also comes down to what do you define success as? Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe making a, a game that, about poop that makes a whole bunch of money, like maybe that's fine, but is that really success? Is that really what you want to do? Is that how you want to accomplish things. Not, not that there's anything wrong with it. Go for it yeah. if that's your idea. But at the same time, a lot of people really enjoy the three-year process of creating these really heavy, deeply complex Euro games yes. that only sell 3,000 copies. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? Yeah. No, there's a whole other world to that. And I feel, I don't know, I feel like it's, you're building, you're building towards something. Like you're building towards something doing that. It might not be the same thing that an inventor who's developing like dozens of games a year, but you're building towards something else toward maybe being your own CEO, building your own business, or maybe working at a game company that, uh, you know, can do more products like that. And, and you can take on a bigger role because you've done it all. You can be the VP of a toy company with the experience that you have. So I don't know. I feel like there's, there's other skills you're building by doing it um, that way. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point is everything's kind of building potentially towards something much bigger down the road that you don't even see right now. You or can't maybe, even see it. Yeah. Or maybe it's not even something you would want to see right now. Right. But 10 years from now, everything changes, right? Especially once you maybe have a mortgage and some kids and you know, yeah. things change as life changes, right? I have to say, I, I never thought I would be doing the things that I'm doing right now. I was very much a corporate person and I always wanted to work for a company that was like my focus and my dream. So but I, I always had this like entrepreneurial side to me. And I think had I realized what, what it was leading me toward, I probably wouldn't have done all the things that I did. So it's sometimes it's good not to know where it's all going to take you and just follow you what you enjoy doing. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Some other examples that I wrote down, uh, pie face, which is one of oh my, my kids gosh. favorite games and I don't enjoy it at all, but they love it. Uh, there's also Mr. Bucket. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. No, you're good. Uh, Mr. Bucket is another one. And then Hungry Hungry Hippos, kind of an old school Ooh, classic. Hungry Hungry Hippos. That's a good one. Yeah. Oh, man, that's taking yeah. me back. Okay. I know, right? And so these are just great examples of toys that are also games. And, you know, there's a million of these ideas. And so let's get into, like, what makes a good toy market game? And you, you listed some really interesting concepts on your website that I really yeah. enjoyed uh, kind of learning about. And so let's dive into those. The first one was the word toyetic which I had never heard of this term, T-O-Y-E-T-I-C, Toyetic. And at first I was like, is that like a knockoff car company? Can I get the Toyetic Facoma or something like that? But no, it's <laughs> it's a real thing. And so tell me what Toyetic is and then like, what does that mean as far as this context? Yeah, like typically the term Toyetic was actually used to describe an IP property, like a movie, as far as if it would lend itself well to being made into a physical product that be that would be marketed for kids. Would it scale into that realm? That's traditionally what it meant. Um, but I kind of flipped it on its head because I felt like the term in, in, the, in the traditional sense actually reinforms how to develop toys and make better toys today just directly in itself, not re in relation to movies. But some of, uh, some of the principles that I pulled out looking at some popular really... Um, really established toyetic properties like the Power Rangers, like two, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are um, properties that have like distinct character personalities. Properties number two that uh, show, uh, lead themselves well to scalability by theme. Properties that have character specific accessories to them and things that also incorporate a sense of surprise conflict. So I use these things as a checklist, like when I'm coming up with an idea or when I'm working with an inventor on an idea and I feel like the idea just isn't there yet. You know, we look at these four things and say, you know, does this self, does this lend itself well to all these four, four toyetic principles? And do we need to change the theme? Do we need to change the personality? Do we need to look at other accessories and other ways to introduce surprise conflict to expand the play pattern of this toy or game? Very cool. Now, is there any specific advice that you have when it comes to certain themes or certain things that just seem to do well in the marketplace? Well, a really good example of, uh, of themes is actually don't step in it because after they had don't, don't step in it, uh, they had, it did really well. So they did a don't step in it llama and a don't step in it unicorn, which is hilarious. So, you know, if your toy, if, if you have a strong toy concept or game concept or toy at a game, it's going to be scalable. So that means that when a trend comes in, like, you know, unicorns were hot for several years, mermaids were hot for several years. Um, 
maybe we see right now, I'm seeing that maybe dragons will be the next big thing if all the movie releases stay on schedule. But um, yeah, so if your idea can lend itself well to different themes of characters that come in and out of trends, oh, you're golden. Very cool. Yeah, I think that's definitely something to keep in mind, no matter what side of the industry, but especially in this toy side, mass market side. All right, another thing you listed on your website was a simplify, you know, real simple concepts, real simple games. So tell me what that means and, and how do you accomplish that? Yeah, so it's, you know, it's such a challenge. When inventors come to me and they tell me the ideas and they're like, oh, this I have this great idea for this product and it's this and it's that. And I'm like, guys, you got to dial it back. You got to dial it way back. It is way too complicated. If it's going to take you more than 30 seconds to explain this idea to me, the idea is too complicated for this market. You've got to understand that like when people are buying these products, they're usually, it's usually an emotional buy. You're not going to get an, an emotional buy from a parent or from a kid asking to have something if it's going to take them two minutes to understand what the product is. So I just really, I just really like to try to break down your toy into like a, like three bullet points. You should be able to explain to me like what is the surprise conflict part of this toy? Where does this play pattern start? Where did this, where is this play pattern at the midpoint right before like the climax and where does it end and does it cycle back? Or is that, is it a one-time use thing like a surprise or a, or like an unboxing type toy? Uh, yeah, like keeping things simple in the toy industry is so important because when you're pitching it to buyers, when parents are seeing it on the shelf or when they're reading a description on Amazon, they're looking for quantity of things that can keep their kids quiet and entertained. And they're, they're making very fast decisions. Absolutely. I think another thing to keep in mind is, you know, a lot of these toy games are kind of contraptions. Like there's a lot of pieces and you put them yeah. together and the contraption turns into like a mechanism in the game or something like that. It needs to be simple. Otherwise it's not going to get played, especially mm -hmm. if the parent doesn't want to set it up. So I'll give you yes. an example. I've got this really great Powerpuff Girl game. I bought it off of eBay for like 20 bucks way back when, because my, my kids were really excited about Powerpuff Girls and I bought this game. And the setup time is like 15 minutes. It, you have oh, to put together the yeah. board and like all these pieces and like, and it is a hassle. And even though the game is fun and I enjoy it and they enjoy it, it is such a pain to set up that, uh, that Powerpuff game might've gone in the top of the closet where nobody sees it. So they don't ask to play it anymore. And you don't want that to happen to your game. And so tell me about like thinking through setup times and also like contraptions and, and making sure those are easy to set up. Tell me about that side. Ooh, that's an interesting question. So it depends on what market you're thinking about though. And it also honestly depends on what toy company you're talking to. Cause they literally all say different things. Um, so like, so thinking about like the kids, so like the kids toy and game market, right? I would say it has to be easy to set up coming out of the box. Like they're not going to wait around, like you said, to, to, to have this game set up to play. And I'm sure I'm not a parent, but I'm sure that if I were a parent and I spent 10 minutes setting up a game, the kid would be like, you know, actually, I don't want to play anymore. I'm kind of, I'm kind of over it. <laughs> and you definitely don't want that to happen. And then on top of that, the buyers um, of these products, a lot of them are parents too. So if you go to a meeting and you try to set up a game for 10 minutes, they're going to be like, you know what? No, we don't even need to see, <laughs> we need to see it. We already know this isn't going to work. So um, you definitely, uh, you, you, I feel like you just need to think about how long it's going to take from out of the box to get it set up. And then for, uh, for adult games in general, people think a lot about replay value. 
and they think a lot about um, drinking games. Like they think uh, when there's a drinking game, how physical do we really want this game to get? And if it's too physical, maybe it won't have replay value because adults just want to, they just want to enjoy their drinks with a few funny questions that are going to have them drinking maybe a little bit more, you know, they don't want it to be too involved. But even as I say that, like those suggestions vary company by company because every company is you know, marketing in a different place, reaching a different demographic. they all have a little bit of conflicting data. Like every time I talk to one toy company, they give me different insight than another. So, you know, I don't want to say there's any one hard and fast rule other than your setup time shouldn't be longer than your play time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good point. Although right. I can see a lot of uh, interest in potentially a drinking game version of don't step in it. I Ooh. think we're missing, we're missing a market right there. Oh, I you. think that's a great idea. <laughs> or maybe that would be better as a don't fall in it. Don't, don't fall stumble in into it. it. Yes. Don't trip and yeah, face point into it. I don't know. There's, there's a name in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. That's oh, a good that's point. So good. And some, something to, to think about. Now, if I do have a game that has a contraption element to it, what is your advice as far as prototyping? Like if I come up with this idea, this concept, and I want to pitch it, do yeah. I have to come up with my own version? Like, how does that work? Cause you know, some of these things are a ton of plastic and tons of things like fitting together. How do I do all that? Yeah. hundred percent. You have to, you have to create a prototype. I've seen a lot of people come to me with a great idea, but they're like, Oh, I don't want to invest in a prototype. And well, you're SOL because you need a prototype. <laughs> Basically the toy companies are paying for your time, your idea, but also for your time and resources that you've spent developing that idea. So if you have a mechanism, there's a couple of ways you could go about it. Inside Toy Creators Academy, I give a, a whole list of places that will develop your concepts for you. Some places will literally take a napkin sketch and they'll give you a quote and say, for this quote, we can make a working prototype. Some places want to turn around drawing. And if you need to turn around drawing and you can't do it, you can look on places like Fiverr and Upwork and get somebody that can do it for you. Or you can just reach out to design schools, like toy design schools, like the one I went to and see if some students are looking for some work and they can give you um, turnaround drawings of what your mechanism is. But ideally, the person you're looking for, their title might vary, but it's an industrial designer or a product designer. Uh, they're going to usually be the one who can um, at least give you a plan drawing of what your product is. Because once you have that plan drawing, you can then say, you know what, this US prototyping thing is like way too expensive. So I'm going to go online and you can use a site like Alibaba and try to find a factory that can help you make your first prototype. And that's what a lot of inventors do. They work with factories who will help them prototype out concepts. And then when they go to the toy company, they have a working prototype and they also have a factory that already knows how to make it. And they also will have samples. So it can be expensive, but I, you know, if you don't know how to use 3D programs and you can't build these things yourself, that it's just, it is what you have to do. It's, it's par for the course. And I tell people, before you go into inventing and you go run off with this great idea, make yourself, um, just make yourself a budget. Like what's your monthly budget? How much are you willing to lose potentially every month? Uh, just developing ideas so that you can feel free in that money and you can feel like, okay, I'm going to just play with this money and see what comes out of it. I don't, you know, I don't want people to invest like tens of thousands of dollars into one idea and then it just gets rejected everywhere just because it's not the right time. Like that's, that's what you don't want to have happen. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I also think no matter what you're doing or what industry or whatever, 
if you go to someone and you're trying to sell something and they ask you about it and you say, well, I didn't want to invest in it. Right. But you, but you want them to? It's, it's <laughs> like, yeah, like that's real. Yeah. That's super <laughs> confident. But you know, some, some people have ideas that are very ambitious and they, they might be good ideas, but it's like, that's going to cost you like a hundred K to develop. <laughs> like, I don't even, I don't know. Like I, I don't know. I would, if you can't find someone on Fiverr, if you can't find someone in China, I would, would I've actually, I've given this advice, simplify your idea, break it down to its simplest parts and see if maybe there's something in the simplest parts that you can turn into another idea. And, and that's, that's actually really good advice. Like toy companies are looking for ideas that are patentable or protectable as far as when you're pitching a mechanism. So if your idea is too complicated and too expensive, is there a way that you can um, break that idea up and apply it to something different? Because if you break that idea up and you develop a little bit of it this month and you or next month and you pitch that to toy companies and someone gets it, then that income, which won't come for another year, but that income can help fund the next idea. Like build. Don't think you have to pitch your big, amazing toy game idea in the first in your first run as an inventor. Yeah, that's some really, really good advice. All right, let's stay on this simplification topic. Let's talk about rules, rule books, rule sets, whatever you want to call them. What's your best advice as far as maybe the number of rules? Or actually, I had Leslie Scott, who's the designer, the creator oh, of Jenga. She yeah. came on the show a while back and she talked about how, hey, you want to have one page or less. Is that the best practice going now in, in 2021? Or is there something else to be thinking about? Just tell me the kind of the best practices as far as rule books, the length and all that. Yeah, I definitely, you know, as I'm saying this, I'm like, I literally played a game last week where the rule book was like four or five pages and we had to stop multiple times in the game. You know what I would say? I would say if you have a licensed game, if your game has an IP on it, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> you can do whatever you want because those diehard fans and the game I'm talking about is, um, oh my God, the Funko game that just came out, Back to the Future. Uh, that rule book was intense. But because it was Back to the Future and we love that movie here in this household, we were reading it, you know. <laughs> but if it were some sort of abstract game and it was too hard to play, honestly, what ends up happening if you go beyond a page, like Leslie said, it's like you just start saying, you know what, we don't need to follow that rule. Like we don't, we're just gonna, we're just gonna kind of DIY in our own kind of way. And yeah, I think that's that's fair to say. Last time I was pitching a game, um, I actually told one of my inventors, like, I really think we need to take this rule out or or this, um, change this section, just because I could, when I was practicing the pitch, it was taking too much for me to get the rules of the game out. So you have to think about if somebody's hearing this all for the first time, and that's what's happening when you're pitching, someone's hearing about your game or your toy for the first time, if they can't remember rule number one, and you're at rule number eight, then they're no, they're not going to be interested in the game, even if it would have been a good fit for them. So they're, and they're not, their job is not to fix your game and say, well, let's cut out rules six to eight and then we'll be okay. Like, no, you have to really be discerning. And, and I would say test it by going to people who are not your friends or your family who are going to just support you no matter what. But um, asking some trusted people, like, is this too complicated? Like, do you understand what's going on here? If you have to explain it more than once, it's, it's going to be a no go because it's easier to say no in a pitch meeting than yes. So you got to make that yes as easy as possible to get. Yeah, now that's a really good point. I want to dive a little deeper into pitches in just a minute. But first, as far as rule books, do you have any advice as far as grade level? Like, should I be writing my rule Ooh. set for a fifth grade level or something like that? 
for, I would say fourth grade level. Is that too little? But I mean, that's, that's like my marketing mind acting there in, in marketing. The rule is you write for a fourth grade level because that's what most people feel is an easy read. So yeah, that, I mean, that would be my advice. I'd go that low. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And obviously it's going to maybe change a little bit depending on, are you making a game like hungry, hungry hippos or something a little deeper, but uh, okay. That makes a lot of sense right now. That third thing that was on your website, I I found interesting is make sure you're, you're thinking through what do buyers want? You know, something I've talked about on this show in the past is make sure you're not answering questions that no one is asking. (laughs) Right. I feel like it's my kind of way to look at it. And so Tell me, what do I need to be thinking about from the toy game market side of things as far as making sure I'm, I'm putting my efforts, my energy, my money into things that people actually want? Yeah, so this only really works if you're trying to get your product into a specific retailer. But if you are, you have to go to their stores and more than one of their stores, preferably in different states if you can, and see what's on the shelves and see what the prices are of the things on the shelves. This is something I go super in depth in my course because it's very important. And so many people don't do this and they develop and they develop and they end up with a product that doesn't fit what the buyer wants. So you look at the products on their shelf, um, the size of it, the price of it, the age that it's targeted toward. And you use that as a parameter for what you're going to create. Now, some of the things you're going to find, you're going to model your product after, you're going to copy the box size, you're going to match the price point. But the other thing, the more important thing, you have to find the white space on the shelf. Like what is no toy company hitting? What mark are they missing? What's missing from their planogram that they don't have? Let's say, um, uh, let's say pink is the hot new color for tools. And there are all these tools products because tools are, there's all these tool themed games because tools are hot. But for some reason, this retailer doesn't have a pink tool product. You want to go in there with that pink tool product. And if you go in there with another tool product that isn't different and, and isn't um, going to bring them additional revenue, then they're not going to take you seriously, especially if it's like the first product that they'll ever take in of yours. You have to go in thinking, the buyer is always looking to turn more revenue on the shelf, right? So what can I bring them that isn't just going to replace something? If you're replacing something, your only argument is to make um, make them more margin, meaning lower price point and same retail. But if you have to come in and say, hey, buyer, I see you have these two things on the shelf and they're pretty much the same thing. I have this idea or this product that fits well in line with what's going on in the world right now. Here's proof of that. It's trend research, it's hashtag research, it's challenges, maybe it's movies, and it's going to hit your price point and it's going to turn more dollars for you because I've actually fought with the factory and gotten this price down really low. So that that's the mindset you have to go in with buyers. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is just something to take heart in, no matter what side of the industry you're looking at, this is what people are thinking. You know, at the end of the day, someone who's going to publish your game or put your game on a store shelf, they're thinking margin. They're thinking, how much money is this going to make me? Why would I do this new thing when I've got these 10 other things that I've been doing for a while and I know how much money they make me every quarter and all that? Like you said earlier, make the yes as easy as possible. And I think another thing to always keep in mind, you're not only competing with all the games, all the toys coming out in a year and every year prior, but you're also competing with Fortnite and you're also competing Mm -hmm. with Netflix and you're also competing with the million other things that are constantly trying to grab someone's attention and their time. And so how do you 
how do you make the case that someone should spend the next 20 minutes paying, playing your game mm -hmm. versus a million other options that they have in front of them? Mm -hmm. And I think that's something to think about no matter what you're creating. Yes. Yeah, 100%. Now, when it comes to components, and that's something we, we've talked a little bit about so far, and let's talk about it from the mindset of, all right, I want to get this thing published. I want to get it printed. I want to get it sold in the marketplace. What are things that you advise people as far as like making sure you don't overproduce a game so where the, the retail price has to be way higher than what people will pay? Like, Give me your best advice as far as what to put in the box and making sure you're not doing too much. Then <laughs> It's actually possible to mass produce this thing. Tell me about that. Yeah. I mean, you always, when you start developing a product for mass market, you always get quotes. You always get quotes from your factory and you should never agree to go into production until you're sure that the price point's right. And then you should factor in for about like 10% um, increase with maybe even sometimes 20% with things that you might not see coming. Um, obviously, like anything that you get open market, which means that it's already something that a factory in China produces and they're just giving you something from basically their shopping mall of existing products. That's always going to be a lot cheaper than trying to create your own, like let's say molded piece for your game. Um, anything paper-based is going to be ideal, especially if you can make your entire game more locally. Um, I'm in the U S so you can do a lot of uh, paper game development in the U S and Canada uh, which will help just as far as like shipping and timing and things like that. Uh, so yeah, so my, I mean, it's so hard because I guess I've been in this so long. So I can, when I see something, uh, I can kind of know how much it's going to cost. But um, the best way to, if you aren't used to doing this, is to use a site like Alibaba because they have a lot of products already on there and you can do some research and find uh, items that are similar to what you're going to put in your box and then estimate your pricing based on that. And whatever price you land on, depending on if you're selling it to a retailer and then they're going to sell it to the customer, you're pretty much marking it up twice. You're marking it up 50% for the retailer, and then the retailer's marking it up 50% uh, for the consumer minimum. And I mean, yeah, I guess some sometimes you have to give the retailer, uh, you actually have to take less margin so that the retailer can charge more margin. Sometimes, there's like, sometimes they have initiatives like, oh, our bosses want us to increase the margin this year. So uh, you have to take less margin if you want the sale. That does happen. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what I would recommend. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Now, is there a little bit more leeway in the toy game side of things than maybe the hobby market? Like before we hit record, you were talking about how you had designed a game with magnets. And <laughs> it just seems like there's lots of opportunity with different kinds of components. I mean, you think about there's so many games in the toy side, like Pie Face. You know, there was just this giant contraption of a, yeah. of a toy in a game. So do you just have more leeway in that side of things? And, and what should you be thinking about if you do have a contraption kind of thing in your game? You mean leeway as far as price point or leeway as far as the materials that it's made of? Anything in general. Like, it seems like companies in the toy game side of things are mm -hmm. a lot more apt to do these these games that have these big plastic things going on versus the hobby side of things where it's real ah. difficult to get people to publish something that has this big plastic, you know, thing. Cause they're looking at like, I can't, I can't make money off of that. So is it, right. is it partially because of the, the numbers, it's, you know, in the yeah, mass market quantity. you're going to print? Oh, for sure. Okay. Yeah. It's for quantity. And it's also because these toy, a lot of the bigger toy companies have partnerships or own factories in China. So they're, I mean, you can't compete 
with the prices that they're getting for plastic and for mold making. Like you just, you just can't compete. You combine that with a a 10, $50,000, a 50,000 piece order from a retailer. And I mean, the pricing is like rock bottom. (laughs) It's, it's, it's really hard to compete. And, and that's another reason why people tend to go the inventor route. Cause they're like, you know what? I really want this game to be as big as possible. I know I don't have the means to make that happen. So maybe partnering with a toy company is the best route. Um, yeah, other than that, I've, I mean, I don't know. Now I'm thinking of the other side of the, the game world, the hobby side, and I guess I feel a little spoiled <laughs> now because I'm like, yeah, we don't think about limitations. And and the magnet game I had, it was actually like a magnetic, like kind of paper situation. So it wasn't like um, loose magnets or anything. Yeah, it's super interesting to think about because in the hobby side, if you have a game that sells 10,000 copies, you've done pretty well. Like that's a yeah. pretty decent size. Hit. <laughs> you know, in the mass market, 10,000 is like, yeah, you know, whatever. I don't, it's like, that's know. a great start. You should, <laughs> <laughs> you should keep going. Uh-huh. No, Absolutely. yeah, I guess I'm just spoiled. Bill. Well, it's just different because you're, you're doing a, a very different thing. That's why I wanted to have you on the show because I want to, I want to talk through, I want to understand this different side of things, this different well, angle and another, go ahead. Sorry, one more thing is the, the one thing that I'm real that's starting to happen as they're getting more open with inventors and they're like, oh yeah, we want your inventor ideas. They're also getting more reserved about not having like a, a IP or a license to tie to it. They're getting, you know, it's like in order for, you know, you come up with a cool game p- pattern and if it's really not revolutionary, people are like, you know, that's a good, it's good. But if you had an IP attached to it, it would be better. So it's getting a little bit hard because you're like, dude, like, you know, not everything can have an IP attached to it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's something interesting just to to be aware of, especially as you're pitching. And let's kind of switch gears and let's talk about pitching in the toy game market side of things. What are the best practices? Like, how do I do it? If I have a game that, that fits in the toy market and I think really, really well, what do I do? Where do I start? Yeah. I mean, well, first you start with Toy Creators Academy. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, seriously, that's like what, that's like all of module seven, but you, you need a one sheet and you need a sizzle. And I mean, need is a strong word, but if you don't have co- contacts, right, you're doing this for the first time, you want to look professional, one sheet and sizzle. Your one sheet kind of describes your gameplay, goal of your game, how to play it, rules, Um, your sizzle is a video, like a 60 second video that is showing your game being played, showing the main features of your game. Uh, Maybe there's a voiceover that explains the rules and and that's what you're going to pitch with. That's what people really love to see in the toy industry. I think it's just a really fast way to understand things. And that's what's really um, popular right now. And after that, I tell people you need a toy contact list. You need a list of of toy companies that you can trust and that you can share your ideas with and you need to reach out to them. You need a template to reach out to them and say, Hey, I'm a new kid on the block, but, uh, I'm also a game or toy inventor. And I have several ideas that would be great for insert company name here because they are in insert category here. And you literally just want to be forwarded over to their inventor relations, uh, department or team. And a lot of toy companies, unfortunately, now are having, um, like they have these online portal submission platforms so that you can submit your ideas. And a lot of inventors don't want to do that. And I totally understand it. But um, like even the small ones now are like, you know what, just send it to our platform. So 
in that case, then you might say, you know what, I want a better shot. So I want to hire a toy agent and a toy agent will take your idea and shop it around to pretty much their friends, their friends in the industry. They'll call and they'll ask for favors and they'll ask for meetings and they will handle the entire process of um, ship, uh, shopping your idea and uh, dealing and dealing and negotiating for you for the best deal possible and all that stuff. So that, I mean, I help a couple of my students uh, do that, but my main focus is really teaching people how to do it on their own because it is possible. Um, but, but once you get your foot in the door, once you get signed on their inventor platform, this is like the biggest issue is be, of being a toy broker. It's um, that once a toy inventor is signed and they form their own relationship, they don't necessarily need you anymore. And as much as like, I'm like, you know, I guess that would suck. But at the same time, I'm like, that's kind of what I want to do. I kind of want to make all these people um, known and, and comfortable and connected to the toy companies that, that they deserve to be connected to. Because I see some of these inventors with amazing stuff, great sizzles, great one sheets, but they just don't have the connections. So I'm like, well, I have 10 years of connections. Like, let's do this, you know? <laughs> Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, when it comes to maybe finding an agent, is there a database? Is there any kind of like, tell me how I would go about finding someone to help me do that? No, you could Google toy agent. I, I, I featured one on my podcast. His name is Michael Good Goodman. And I'm hopefully going to feature him again because everyone loved him. He's a lovely man. Um, and you can literally just Google there. They're literally, they're about like four in the toy industry four like big ones. Like these are the big ones that everybody knows. And then there are other people like me, like I'm not one that anybody knows, but, but there are other people. I have friends of mine that also do it here and there on the side and they'll help you. The, the percentage is the thing that holds most people up. Like toy agents can take anywhere from like 40 or 30 or 40 or 50%. Um, because it's a lot of work shopping around your idea. You know, you're building your own presentations to fit the people. You're calling on personal favors. You're negotiating deals. You're probably working with your lawyer to work through the contracts. And, you know, it's a, it's a lot of work. But, yeah, the only way is to – I'm going to try to have more on my show because I, I can't take everything on. I don't have every contact. So part of what I'm doing is trying to make sure that people know who these people are out there that they can reach out to. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. So one of the things I've noticed about this side of the industry is the secrecy. It seems like there is so much like secret, not like a gatekeeping necessarily, but like, hey, we don't talk about this game, all these NDAs and, and the game's not going to come out for three years, but we can't yeah. say anything about it. And, you know, and if, if you talk about it, like in public, you might get in trouble with the company. And so tell me kind of that side of the, in, the toy side of the industry's secrecy and things just to be aware of if I'm wanting to break into that side. Oh, yeah. So you're going to have to sign an NDA before anybody wants to see anything from you. Do not in your first email, if you get an email address for a toy company, do not send them your idea right away. It will get you like blacklisted, like nobody's business. You just want to ask to be connected with their inventor relations person. And once that happens, they're going to be like, here's an NDA. Here's what you need to sign to get set up with us. And then some of them have these whole online portals and this process that you have to work through. And the NDAs, like when you read them, you're going to be like, oh my God, I don't want to sign this. This basically says they can just do whatever they want. But at the end of the day, like that's unfortunately is what it is. At the end of the day, the toy, the toy industry is so small and usually toy companies don't steal ideas outright. 
sometimes inventors feel as though their ideas are stolen, but they don't, you know, it's because everybody is constantly experiencing the world and coming up with ideas. So there's a high likelihood that the team of like a hundred designers that this major toy co has happened to have the same idea as you and they passed on it from you, but they developed it on their own. And these NDAs are designed to protect from things like that. So a lot of these inventors, like I, like, I just feel like, you know, it, you know, if you're, if you're going to be held up by these NDAs that say that, you know, your ideas are kind of really not protected and, um, it's you're not going to really get anywhere. Don't ask a toy company if you can edit their NDA. Don't ask them if, you know, <laughs> if you really feel uncomfortable with them, just don't move forward. But I had the big ones. You just, it's a level of trust. It's more about who you know. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like another thing to realize is a lot of these games are, are rule sets that fit on one page. And so they're very simple. And so it could be very easy for yeah. there to be some parallel yeah. design going on. So just something to, to think about. Now, when it comes to patents mm-hmm. and patenting a mechanism, patenting a game idea, like tell me, I don't know much of anything about patents. That's not right. something I deal with on the, the hobby game side of things. It's just not something we do for the most part sometimes, but for the most part, it's not worth it. Right. And it, it just takes too long. And anyway, it's not worth all the hassle and the cost yeah. and the lawyers and all that stuff. But tell me about patents on your side of things. And what do I yeah. need to be thinking about? Do I do this before pitching after? Like, help me understand. Right. So patents are something that um, I think are more beneficial the bigger you are. So I, again, on my side, like I don't think that patents are worth getting when you're just an inventor just starting out. Um, filing a provisional patent application, however, is always a good move if you can afford it because you're just um, protecting your idea for that first um, year so you can shop it shop it around and see if you can get it licensed. But at the end of the day, the hard and sad truth of it is um, if somebody wants to rip off your idea, uh, they, they're going to do it. And it really comes down to, can you afford to fight it? And is it, you know, is it really something that you want to put your money and time into fighting? That is the sad truth of it. And I, I hate to say it, but, you know, toy companies take on a ton of, um, liability in doing what they do and creating the product that they create. So, you know, at some, sometimes people are like, oh, but that was my idea. And maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But did you really want to take on the liability of manufacturing and marketing a million of them? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, I, I don't think so. You know, you just have to really, really choose the crosses that you die on here. <laughs> like, could you like, could you even do it anyway? Did you even have the ability to d- make yeah. and market a million, right? Yes, exactly. So the, the best way to protect yourself is if you can, and if your idea is actually patentable, is to provisional patent it. And what's good about doing a provisional patent is that tells a toy company, if something is actually patentable, it gives at least the illusion that it is. And that tells them like, oh, if we license this idea, we can get that patent and then we can protect it from our um, from anyone else that might try to, to recreate it and to infringe on our patent. And they have the money to fight it. And for them, because of the numbers they'll be doing, it might be worth it. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just, it's a, it's a tough game. It's really only a game you can fight if you can afford to fight it, unfortunately. So I, I don't know, you know, I I wouldn't let it hold you up. Gotcha. Now, when it comes to knowing if I have an idea or a mechanism or whatever that's patentable, like what are some bullet points as far as like, all right, it needs to check these boxes if you're going to travel that. Oh my gosh. I actually wrote this down recently. So it's so funny that you asked me that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I got it. All right. So. 
I actually did, I did, I held a toy challenge and a big part of the toy challenge was, you know, let's come up with new ideas. At the end, I might pitch some of these ideas to toy companies. People came up with great ideas. Um, and some of the ideas were patentable, some weren't. So I sent out this list to people saying like, here are some things that I look for um, when I'm pitching an idea. Some of it has to do with patent and some doesn't. Uh, but before pitching an idea to a toy company, I look for one of these three things. One, is it around an IP that has a strong following? Two, does it have a unique function is what makes something patentable um, or a mechanism or some sort of, sort of technology? And that unique function, I just want to give an example because a unique function could be something that's already being used, let's say, to squeeze out ketchup but now being applied to paint for crafts changes the function. So sometimes a unique function can be a piece of an invention that already exists that you build on and then you change the use of it and it can apply to a different industry. So that's one thing there. And then finally, um, just is it, if it's a game, is it a fully developed play pattern and maybe even a themed play pattern? And it's gotta give people this feeling of like, oh my gosh, why didn't I think of that? So those are my three points that I gave my toy people from the toy challenge that are really helpful. Okay, that makes sense. And so let's use a, speci a specific example. If I was the inventor of Hungry Hungry Hippos, mm -hmm. how mm -hmm. would I go about getting that mechanism the way that, you know, little hippos come out and grab the yeah. marbles? I'm assuming I can patent that. Like, what would that look like? What, what, like, walk me through that process. Yeah, I guess you would, you would reach out to a, a lawyer first. I guess there'd be two stages. First, you would search to make sure it's not already existing. So you'd perform like a Google patent search. You'd go on the USPTO if you're in the US and search to see if there's an existing patent like yours. That will be a really tough search. So you might decide, let me hire a lawyer and have them do the search for me. Um, from there, you can actually file a provisional patent application online. They're about 70 bucks, but I think they were raising to 85. That might've already happened. Um, and then you can file your provisional patent. There's like a lot of like, uh, things out there about if you file the provisional patent wrong, like you say the wrong things in it, then it might hinder your final patent application. But again, we are not, we're not here for that long of a game. We're, we're just here. We're just trying to get that provisional so we can sell it and we can move on. Right. So yes, yeah, so the next stage would just be getting that provisional patent and, and you have to also take a lot of images. So you, Usually you could take like pictures of your invention if you have pictures and then draw over it because you have to submit like figure drawings for this um, provisional patent and the figure drawings have to explain the use. But again, this is something that most people hire a lawyer to help them do uh, and just help them flesh it out so it can be done the right way. For me, um, one time I did a provisional patent on this costume company that I, I was doing a while ago. And I had a bunch of images of me wearing this dress in all of the different ways because it was convertible. So I took all of those images and used those images um, as my base for my figure drawing uh, because they showed all the different ways how you twist and tie it and snap it. Okay, very cool. That, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, when it comes to naming a game, you know, and you're going to pitch this game should you be in love with the name or do publishers have a tendency just to take your name and go, oh, that's cute, but we're going to do something completely different. Like help me understand the best practices as far as naming these ideas. Yeah, that's a great question. I think a name should be straightforward and to the point. And if you can design a logo, it could, it should emote like an emotion. I 
I've, I've been pitching a couple of games lately and I think that it helps when I say the name of the game and it puts the person listening into a mindset. Like they know where we are in time. They know where we are in space. They know if we're in a school or if we're in a church. I really think that it's, it's helpful if your name is straightforward and kind of leads the pitch. Because then if, if the name is like obscure, it's like flower. Then it's like, tell me what flower is about. Actually, it's a murder mystery game. Like that doesn't make any sense. That's not making the yes easier, right? <laughs> so I think the name needs to be clear cut. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. No matter what side of the industry you're on. Again, going back into marketing, clarity is king. And if someone has a hard time understanding what this is, what it means, what's this about? Well, there's a million other things that are more clear that they're probably just going to put your thing down and go on to the next yeah. one. So I'm not going to say like, they'll probably change your name though, but like, <laughs> but for the pitch, but for the pitch, you want it to be clear. <laughs> yeah. That makes a lot of sense as well. Yeah. And I guess once they buy it from you or, and, and tell me how that works. Uh, yeah. And we don't have to get into like super specifics of contracts and stuff like that, but yeah. help me understand how it works as far as they, they buy it from you and then you get like a percentage of the sales or you get an upfront fee or a, a royal, like help me understand how both. that side. Okay. Yeah, it could be both. You could get an upfront in advance um, and then that advance will be taken off the back of future sales. Uh, and then you get a royalty of the sales and you negotiate that royalty rate. Uh, yeah, that's how it works. And it, it's usually for a certain amount of time. So it's not like, in perpetuity usually, <laughs> but it's usually for a certain amount of time and they might have to renew it, I guess, if they want to keep, keep selling under it. Okay. And now can you give me like a range of, well, you can expect anywhere between four and 8% or something like that in general. Yeah, I feel like it's like you could get four to like 7%. And that's if you're just a no name inventor or even actually, no, that's, that's a, even if you're an established inventor, but you're not like an established IP on your own. So you're just an inventor. Even if you're like top notch inventor, you're still just an inventor. When you get into IP territory and IP territory is like, if I'm Britney Spears and I'm like, you know what? I have an idea for a game. You can get a lot more. <laughs> so then you get into like the 12% range. So you get maybe, uh, you know, get all the way up to 12%. Uh, when you're when you have some clout behind you, but for everyday inventors, it's around five to seven, four to seven. Okay, cool. So that's not too far off the uh, the hobby game side of things. Oh well. yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's roughly those percentages. Although the th the thing to think about is in the hobby side again, if you sell two thousand, that's pretty good. Uh, in the the toy market, you might be selling a whole lot more, and so it's something to yeah. Just keep in mind. And so tell me anything else I need to be aware of when pitching as far as patents and, and contracts, percent, anything else that you find to be really helpful information? Yeah. So actually, if you do choose to patent something, you actually should know that you can use that patent to help negotiate a higher uh, royalty rate for yourself. You know, toy companies will be like, oh, wow, like we don't have to do anything. <laughs> you can just slap this on. It's done. So, yeah, it's very helpful. If you if you choose to develop a patent, again, ton of money. Totally understandable if you say no, I'm not doing that. But if you do, that can help nudge you to the higher end of the royalty rate. All right. As far as like general numbers, as far as a print run, what are you seeing on, maybe on average or give me just a range of when somebody gets one of these games signed and the toy company produces it, do they produce 5,000, 20,000? Like what are some of the numbers that I could expect? Yeah, it depends on the company. It depends on the company and it depends where they're selling it. If they're selling it, um, I would say like at, like minimum you'd expect 10,000, 20,000 for the, for the year. 
Um, but it also depends on when they're selling because a lot of toy companies now are selling on Amazon and the numbers are like 5,000. And I, I say this because I pull up, um, there's like an, a plugin app that I don't know if you know about, but it's called Amazon um, Scout. And I use this app and you can plug in and see they're selling like 5,000 pieces a week. <laughs> it's like, what? Wow. <laughs> That's crazy. What? <laughs> So, I mean, granted, I was checking the numbers in December. So maybe, you know, Q4 sales, the highest 70% of the toy business is like Q4. So maybe, maybe that's what was going on. But um, yeah, pl- get that app. Like this, this plugin I have, like Amazon Scout Pro. Oh, so good. I like go in there all the time and I'm seeing what people are selling. I'm like, what? <laughs> wow, that is phenomenal. And yeah, that's definitely something to keep in mind, especially if you're trying to figure out like, what does the market want? What are the current trends? What are some things that people are actually buying in the real world not in theory and that's that's exactly what i use it for that's exactly it's so hard though because like the retail side you can't read that way it's not online it's not on amazon you can't so you just you kind of it's it's hard to say well this is selling on amazon is it really going to sell on retail because shopping online versus shopping in store is so different yeah that makes a lot of sense anything else that I need to be thinking about if I'm going to try to take a toy game into the market, any, anything we've left out. I I would say maybe pay attention to the news. I I feel like, um, to the toy news, I guess not not like the regular people news. (laughs) Yeah. I don't, I don't want to pay attention to any news after 2020. Like I'm having no news for like three years. That's the real news, (laughs) the toy news, the good news. The toy news, because you'll you'll see announcements um, for licensing. You'll see uh, people will announce their licensing partnerships. And so like right now you're seeing um, Among Us made a licensing deal for toys already. And if you, you know, if you, if you think about it, you can say, okay, well, they just made a licensing deal um, with this toy company. So more must be coming. And when more are coming, when a toy company takes on a license, they really want to turn dollars on that license. They really want to sell because there are penalties if you don't. So they're going to need or be interested in innovation. So if you can come up with something to innovate a license that you see is gaining traction and you can pitch it to the right company again, because you're not in the company, it's kind of going to be like a chance pitch. Like maybe you guys have this license, but it's worth a shot because I'm telling you, I've done this. And the toy companies are like, you know, I really like that you are pitching me these IP concepts because we were considering this license and it's really good to see. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, Joe, this has been excellent. Do you have any closing thoughts, maybe for someone who's listening to this and they've been designing, you know, hobby side of, of games and maybe they've got a family game or maybe they've got something they're like, oh, maybe I could rework this. Maybe I could come up with an idea that would really fit the toy market side of things. What advice would you give them? Oh, well, first, I would say, listen to my podcast and see how you feel about the toy industry, about the toy mass toy market. Uh, I tell a lot about what the toy market is like. I give a lot of interviews. It's a really great insight into the toy world. And if you think you might like it, you should check out um, Toy Creators Academy, my online course, because it's a very hands-on situation where I'm going to be there with you uh, while we go through the modules. We're going to have coaching sessions and I'm going to walk you through how to do the things you need to do to get your idea seen by toy companies. And I think the biggest part of what I do is connect people. So I connect you to whoever I feel like I need to connect you to, to make sure that 
you know, you get the best shot at making your toy ideas real, whether you want to manufacture them and sell them online, or you want to license them to a toy company. Very cool. Uh, Remind me the name of your podcast and tell me where we can find you online. So the podcast name is up in the air because it might change soon. (laughs) But let's say it's, it's making it in the toy industry with the toy coach, and it may soon be called the toy coach. So... That's what people keep calling it by accident. So that's why I'm just going to move You might as well. Yeah, might as well make it clearer. People keep calling it by accident. So just go to thetoycoach.com and you will find everything. You'll see a link for Toy Creators Academy. You'll see a link for my podcast. You'll see it all. So just go to thetoycoach.com. Awesome. Well, Zell, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with getting more cool, fun toys and games out into the market and everything else you got going on right now. Oh, thank you so much, Gabe. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?